Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The King James Version of the Bible calls the presenting of our bodies as living sacrifices as our reasonable service. Service is used here as in worship service and reasonable as in this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Teaching team member David McNeely brings us this message entitled Living Sacrifices, which covers Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Thank you for joining us today. What does a life look like that is truly worshipful? We know what it's like to worship. We all worship something. It doesn't take us very long to, to, to worship because our hearts are naturally drawn towards it. The way that we were hardwired by God when God created us is that we long to attach ourselves to something greater than ourselves. So we will seek that in a variety of places. We know that it's not really worth it to just worship us. I mean, to have ourselves sitting on a throne gets old after a while. We get bored with ourselves and and we know there's something much bigger, something much more grand that we would love to give ourselves to, holy, consecrated, committed to. Sometimes it's football. Sometimes what we just naturally gravitate towards and it takes our mind's attention, our heart's affection, it takes our wallets, it takes that that which is of us, it, it goes towards football. Nobody had to force me to stay up last night to watch the ball game. In fact, nobody had to, to force me to stay up to watch 15 ball games. I don't even know who's playing. I just love sports. I grew up in Alabama, and, and so I have this unusual worship level of Alabama football. It's a confession. But my parents grew up in North Carolina, and, and so I also have this unusual worship level for North Carolina basketball. Now, I know right now some of you are going, that's ah, so cheap. You just pull for winners. And they have but it, 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 we go there naturally. Some of you could care less about sports. It's not that big of a deal. You go worship athletics. That's great, Dave. Really good. Others of you sit, but you worship your family, don't you? What takes your mind's attention, your heart's affection, that which you are willing to, to lay down your life for it is your family. Now, in some ways, that's good because... Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. So in some ways, that's a good thing you'd be willing to die for him, but you know what I mean. We tend to place our family in a place where they don't really belong. And my whole identity is tied up into how my family is doing. So as long as my children are doing well, as long as they are doing well socially, as long as they're doing well economically, as long as they're doing well spiritually, I'm doing well. But if they're not, I'm a wreck. Some of us worship our jobs, believing that if we work hard enough and we do enough and we accomplish enough and we are progressing high enough up on that ladder, if we bring enough income in, then it will establish who I am. It will give me identity. It will give me security. It will say, I am somebody. And your mind's attention and your heart's affection goes so easily to what it is that you do for a living. We know what it's like to give ourselves to something. What does it look like to give ourselves wholly over to God? That is where we struggle. So today, what we want to sit on is just this whole concept of worship. How do we worship outside of this building right here? 
We know what it's like to come inside, to be moved by the music, to have our hearts stirred by what it is that's sung and read and done. We know what that looks like. But once we walk out of these doors and once we get into Monday morning and Wednesday afternoon and Friday midday, what does it look like for us to have a life that is lived in worship before God? What does it look like to have a life that screams the glory of God? Even if we don't use words. That's what we long for. Some of you may be here as skeptics and you may be wondering, hey man, you're out there. This whole worshiping of something that you can't see, smell, feel, taste, or touch, I think that you guys are way deceived. And to get... What I would simply respond with is this. I think you know what it's like to give yourself to something that is created. I just want you to investigate what it would be like to give your life to the creator. Earlier in the Bible, God approached a patriarch. He approached a man named Abraham and he went to Abraham and Abraham was an idol worshiping pagan. And it wasn't because Abraham was living a good life that God sought him out and pursued him. It was precisely the opposite because he was in such a pitiful condition. God went after him and God wanted to do a significant work to turn him around and actually to do something all across the whole globe, starting with this dude right here. So he goes to him, he says, I'm going to promise you something. I am going to promise you that I am going to give you land. I'm going to give you this inheritance that is going to be so widespread. I'm also going to give you descendants though. Now this was particularly important to him because he was older in age and he had not yet had children. I am going to give you so many descendants that you can't even count them. Be like trying to count the stars in the sky or trying to count the sand on the seashore. You can't count how many descendants are going to come after you. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you a blessing. You're going to bless the whole globe. You know, we are fulfilling that promise right now. It started with Abraham, but it's always been about the people of God. It's never really been about one specific person when it comes to those that are not God, those that are created beings. It's never really been about one particular person. It started with Abraham, but it moved on to the people of God. And in the New Testament, we call the people of God, the church. You and I are part of that. God has called you and I to bless, to bless the whole world. God wants to bless the whole world. And he wants to do it through you. Why he wastes his time with us, I'm still unsure of, but he does. He transforms us. He does something inside to where we look for opportunities. We long for opportunities to go and to share him with others. For three weeks, we've been talking about that. Danny Warfel stood on this stage three weeks ago to kick us off in this series. And even though I'm older than Danny, I still had that moment being a sports freak. I still had that moment where I went, dude, this is Danny Warfel. He is, in my opinion, the greatest college quarterback that's ever played the game. And if I were Danny Warfel, there would be zero capacity for any level of humility whatsoever. I would walk around permanently attached to me, the Heisman Trophy. It'd be like a little buddy on a little pocket right here. Just kind of show him every now and then, hey, this is me. I, I did it. I would have, he gave a great example, didn't he? About being up on a pedestal. He talked about a guy shining his shoes that put him in his proper place. He talked about being a blessing, though, to the city that you and I are called to bless those, to bless this city, to bring transformation to it. We're trying to go about that the best that we can here at Perimeter Church. We are doing it well sometimes, and we're doing it really poorly sometimes, but we really are trying to go after that. Matt Ballard is a good friend of mine. I will go to my grave saying he is the smartest redneck I have ever met. 
Ballard stood on this stage and he told us that the best way for us to bless our family, and this is a paraphrase, is to continuously over and over and over and over again, remember that Jesus is still doing a work. I need, I have not arrived. I blow it all the time. Now it's not an excuse that you and I will just blow it and then ask those that we blow it against to just simply get over it. Yeah, I sinned against you and I'm just a sinner, so just get over it. It's not what he's saying. We're saying is continuously come to others and say, I need Jesus now. The greatest blessing we can give to our family is that we need Jesus at the present moment. I didn't just need him when I first came to faith. I need him right now because I'm just starting to see the depths of the sin of my own personal heart. That's how we bless our family. Bart Garrett stood here. Bart and I are from the same town. He's my little brother's age. I was his coach. And Bart stood here and he talked about the blessing that we're going to give to the next generation. He brought out a baton and he talked about how it is that we will hand that baton off. We all are in the business of handing the baton off. I don't care if you're 80 or if you're 20, we're all in the business of handing the baton off. And we bless the next generation. How is it we go about that? And I told Bart on Monday, you know, I had lunch. I told him, I said, Bart, your message was so deep. And so profound, it's going to take me four or five days to process even what you just said. And it's exactly what I did. I had to go back and listen to it over again and watch it again. I had to watch it. He is so smart. It was so deep. It was so rich. It was so theological. It was so helpful. At the end of the day, though, and I don't know if you caught this, what he said at the very end of the message, I want to pick up on that. He said that you and I, and it almost seemed like a tag along, you and I live disembodied lives. Our culture at large lives a disembodied lives meaning that we tend to treat this right here as if it's not important. What Paul is going to draw us to now and looking at how it is that you and I worship, he says this right here is important. And in some ways it drives what it is that you and I do. You have your Bibles open with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul is writing to a group that is very diverse. They're diverse economically. They're diverse socially. They're diverse racially. They're diverse culturally. They're certainly diverse religiously, meaning all sorts of religions that were in this culture and context. And so folks that are coming to faith in Christ, they're coming from all kinds of different backgrounds and they're bringing in with them some good and they're bringing in with them some baggage as well. And when he writes to them, he's trying to write to them to get across something that's very specific. He's trying to tell them, look what God has done. Never let that leave your view. Do not operate and function in life without looking and seeing what it is that God has done, he is doing, and he will do. It should always start with what God has done. Never let that get out of your rearview mirror. If you and I move past what it is that God has done, we get into all kinds of trouble. So he spends the entire first 11 chapters of Romans talking about what it is that God has done. It's just, here's what he's done. Here's what he's done. Here's what he's done. Look here, here, all there's very, very, very few commands that are given in the entire first 11 chapters of Romans. It's all about what it is that we should know. The chapters 12 and on for the rest of the book are all about what it is that we should do in light of what it is that he has done. But please don't mix up the order. It's not you go do. So that he might do. It's look what he's done. And in light of this, we can respond. 
Romans chapter 12, all I'm going to read is just verse 1. That's all we have time for this morning. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship that goes beyond the walls is this right here. Worship that is done outside of the service is done right here. The heart of what he's getting at to you and I is, is worship. And I want to start at the end real quick. And I want to I'm gonna come back and give you some blanks. But I want to start at the end because this is what we got to know. This is your spiritual service of worship. Meaning what I am after is you worshiping. I am not just after something that it is that you want to do. I'm not just after something is you want to bring. I'm not just after portions of what it is. I'm after your whole complete worship. He says, therefore. Now, I want to fill the blanks in for you real quick. Um, uh, Our main thought in in here is about worship. And that's why I started there. The main thought is worship. And and worship, true worship, is about being rather than bringing. And let me add one little word in there. I didn't get it to the guys in time. Um, I I thought about it last night and I, I just botched this one. It is more about being than it is about bringing. True worship. We know what it's like to worship things falsely. True worship, the worship of the living God, the creator, the sustainer, worship of him is more about being than it is about bringing. Now in this text, I see three things that come in here uh, particularly. The first one is this, true worshipers build their lives on the mercies of God. That's why he says, therefore. We all are building our lives on something. Things I just talked about before. We can build our lives on our career. We can build our lives on friendships, approval, acceptance from others. We can build our lives on our family. We can build our lives on our money. We can build our lives on a whole lot of things. What Paul says is this though, true worshipers, worshipers who worship the God, the sustainer, the creator, all true worshipers build their lives on the mercies of God. The second thing, true worshipers voluntarily and intentionally offer themselves to God. It's a voluntary act. It's an intentional act. It's a methodical act. It's planned out. It's hard. It's impossible. But this is what they do. True worshipers don't just stumble upon a service and all of a sudden are so gripped that they begin worshiping. True worshipers are intentional. They pursue, they devote, they offer. The last thing, true worshipers are consumed by God. True worship is consuming, but it's not us doing the consuming. True worship is us being consumed. Because worship is really much more about what it is that we are being rather than what it is we are bringing. And so when we tend to come to the table and look and see what it is that we can, can bring in, what we can d- d- devo- or, or digest, um, that, that's not really what's at the heart of it. What's really at the heart of it is that, God, I am all yours. And I want you to consume me. I want you to have all of me. We'll see that in this passage. 
He starts out with therefore. Now, this is the ninth time he's used the word therefore in this book so far. But this one should be seen as the granddaddy of all the therefores in Romans. This therefore, as Randy has indicated to us so many times in the past, anytime we see therefore, we should go back and see what it's there for. So this therefore is there in light of all that is written in chapters 1 through 11. Paul starts out in chapter 1 telling us that the wrath of God is being revealed to all of mankind. Now, why is this wrath being revealed to all mankind? Because we have suppressed the truth. We have taken the truth. We know that God is God. God, by definition, is on the throne. There is no one that is above him. But what we have done is we have tried and attempted to ignore that truth, to suppress that truth, to hold that truth down, and to live life as if that's not true. We don't want to bow to anyone or anything. We don't want to have to answer to an ultimate being. We want to be autonomous. We want to answer only unto ourselves. And so the thought of bowing down before a creator, no. Even though I see evidence of him out there, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to give him the finger and I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And God stands against that. He stands in opposition to that. He will not tolerate that. So his wrath is being revealed on all who take that approach. Chapter two tells us, is God unjust in doing this? Is he righteous in in having this particular attitude? I mean, after all, if we're fallen creatures, can God really demand that we worship him in this manner? Can we really demand that we bow before him only? Absolutely. And the beautiful thing, a beautiful line in chapter two, it tells us that the way that we come to God, the way that God oftentimes draws us in, because he's the one, we'll see it in just a minute. He's the one that chases after us and pursues us. The way that he brings us in is not by our fear of being hammered, but rather what brings us to repentance is his kindness. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's his goodness. It's his extension to us that we say, oh, thank you. Chapter three says, is there any difference between those that are on the outside and those that are on the inside of this whole religious thing? Those that are on the inside of the church and outside, is there any distinction? Are we better off because we're on the inside? And Paul says, no, we're not better off. We all have gone our own way. We've all gone in a different direction. We all have given God the finger. We all have pursued a direction that is opposite of him. We all have refused to bow before the throne. And so all of us should righteously be punished. And yet what's amazing, it tells us in there that God justifies us freely by his grace. In chapter four. He talks to us about how it is that we are made right before God. We see that there's a need to be made right before God. We see that we're not right before God now. So how is it that we get made right before God? The way that we're made right before God is not by cleaning up our language. The way that we're made right before God is not by giving more. The way that we're made right before God is not by stopping anything or starting anything. It's by faith. God came to Abraham and said, I am going to do this. And Abraham said, I choose to believe that you're telling the truth. And the scriptures tell us that at that moment, Abraham was justified. Did Abraham sin after that? He sent his brains out after that. But he was made right before God because he believed God. That's how you and I are made right before God, by believing. By throwing our hands up in the air and saying, it's no longer about me. I choose to believe that what you did is sufficient for me. We can either believe or we can suppress. 
chapter 5, it makes a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam was given all the stipulations. He was given all the requirements of what it would mean to, to have a relationship with God. There's going to be all kind of blessings. If you maintain this relationship, there'll be curses, though, if you don't maintain this relationship. The first Adam blew it. And because the first Adam blew it, now a sin nature is passed on to every single human that has ever been in existence except for one. That sin nature makes us naturally gravitate away towards God, away from bowing the knee before his throne. But the second Adam got it right. The first Adam didn't, the second Adam did. The second Adam is Jesus. The second Adam kept all of the promises. He never had a bad thought, never had a wrong motive, never had a wrong deed. He did everything in absolute perfection. And because now of what he has done, in the same way sin was passed down to us, righteousness is now passed on to those who believe. So because of him, we get to reap all the benefits of the relationship with God. Chapter five reveals one of the most remarkable scenes for me in all of scripture. When it says that, you know, for somebody good, a few people may die, but, but, but Christ died for us when we were still in sin, meaning when we were in this position of going the opposite direction with anger and venom towards him, that's when he jumped down and chased us. Chapter six, I would refer you to one of Randy Pope's sermons, in my opinion, one of his best sermons on how it is that we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Know, consider, and present. You can find it at www.perimeter.org backslash Pope. Know, know that you're dead to sin and alive to Christ. Consider what it is that God has done and then present the members of your body for God's service. Chapter one had told us earlier that the people that God had handed them over and that they were now using their bodies for evil purposes and they were worshiping things that were created rather than the creator. Over here, he says, now, don't offer your bodies for sin. Offer your bodies for righteousness that God may use it. It sounds really simple. We just believe, and then we just offer ourselves. We just walk in the power of the Spirit. That sounds really simple. Chapter 7 tells us, oh, it is so excruciatingly hard. Because that which I want to do, I find myself not doing. I really do want to be respectful to my wife, and I find myself not being respectful to my wife. I want to love my children, but I find myself not really loving my children. I find myself doing what's best for me. I want to honor God with my words. I find myself not honoring God with my words. The very thing that I hate doing, now that's what I find myself doing. You find yourself going back again and again to the computer to view those pictures. You hate it. You feel so guilty. And yet you can't get away from it. You walked right again into that conversation in which you know that the way you spoke about her was gossip. And you feel so guilty afterwards. You know you shouldn't have done it, but you find yourself doing it again and again. You don't want to cheat, but you cheated on your taxes or your exam or your test or whatever it was. I hate doing it, but I do it. So who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Praise be to Jesus, chapter 8. Those who are in Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. No longer is there a God who is looking down with wrath and anger on your behavior. There's a God who is looking down and he sees his son, Jesus. He sees that Jesus is covering you. He sees Jesus's record and there is no condemnation. In fact, there is actually nothing that can separate you from that love. 
Neither height nor depth, powers, nothing, not even you, Jack, can separate you from God if you are in Christ because that which God grabs a hold of, he hangs on to. Chapter nine tells us there's these twins. One of these twins will follow God. One of these twins will not follow God. And God did this from the beginning of time. He wanted to put on display his righteous justice and he wanted to put on display his righteous mercy. It was God who mapped that out. Chapter 10, it tells us that we've confessed with our mouths and believe in our hearts. We will be saved. But now how is it that we even come to this knowledge? Oh, by, by hearing and hearing comes by faith, faith from the word of God. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And I don't think he's talking about yahoos like me who bring the good news. I think he's talking about us who bring the good news to the world. How beautiful are your feet who bring good news to your children. How magnificent and glorious are the feet of you who bring good news to your office. How wonderful, how exquisite are the feet of you who bring good news to the city, to the family, to the next generation. Chapter 11, he talks about an engrafted branch. He talks about that which Jesus or God started out with Israel. He has brought into into his covenant family, this thing called the Gentiles. And he talks about some plan that I'm not exactly confident in. I I don't know um, exactly what he's saying there. So I'll leave that to other more learned folks. But listen to the way he closes out chapter 11. In light of all that it is that God has done, in light of all of his mercy, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul says in light of all of that. Therefore, I urge you. Now, this is a great word in the original language. It is not a word that is a command that is given. Paul is not breaking out his apostolic authority and saying, do this. And he's also not just stepping back and saying, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe if you want to put it in a, you know, this is a suggestion that we get. It's neither one of those. The word is somewhere in between the two. He uses this word over here, the word for command in verse three. He uses this word in other places, but this word is somewhere in between the two. I am urging the King James, the new King James says, I beseech other translations say, I plead, I beg, I long for, I want. What he's saying is I am begging you. I am urging you. I'm not commanding you. Why not commanding? Because he's urging us to give ourselves voluntarily and intentionally. He is urging us to sacrifice our very selves in here. And sacrifice that is forced is not really a sacrifice. So I'm urging. I'm appealing. I'm begging. I'm telling you it's the greatest thing in the world that you will ever do. But I know, I know it's frightening. Therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy in light of what it is that he has done because of what it is that he has done by the power even of what it is that he has done to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. 
Now, when these words went off to the Romans, they knew exactly what Paul was referring to. They knew exactly that he was referring to an altar. Now, there's several different types of altars. We won't walk through them all, but just a couple. Sometimes an altar was just simply to be a monument to the Lord. It was to be a reminder. It was to show the people of a space and time in which God did something unusual. You remember when Joshua passed over the water and the waters parted, and they built this monument over there of stone. When Moses was on the scene, though, and Noah had done it, there's been plenty of others that had, that had offered sacrifices before the Lord on stone altars, etc. When Moses comes along, God gives him some specific instructions on an altar though. And this is when it gets very interesting. This altar was to be made of wood. It was to be seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. We couldn't quite make it seven and a half feet wide because we couldn't get it in the doors in here. But seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. And then it was going to be four and a half feet high. And what would happen on this with these little horns that we made on top, what would happen is that they would bring an animal. It's overlaid with bronze so that it wouldn't melt when it's there. And there's going to be a fire that's taking place on this thing. And the fire's going to be always going. It's always running. And a sacrifice would be made. And so every morning and every night a sacrifice was made. But every time there was a sin that took place from the people, they would have to come and to bring this animal. And so they would bring an animal over to the priest. The person would put their hand on the animal's head and they would be symbolically transferring all of their sin onto this animal. So the sin would then go to this particular animal. And then the animal's throat was slit. They would take the blood and they would sprinkle the blood on all sides of the altar. Sometimes they would even do it on the horns themselves. And they would get the blood. It's covering the whole thing. It's the blood of the animal that covers the whole thing. And then this lifeless animal was placed upon the altar. And what happened over here was that all of the animal was totally and completely consumed. Nothing was left. And so when Paul says, I want you to offer yourselves, he knows he's not asking people to come and just bring a little sacrifice. He's asking them to be the sacrifice. And what would have gone through every person's mind was, if I get up here, then I'm going to lose my life. And so I want to, but I don't know that I'm capable of doing that quite yet. Maybe I should, I don't know. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is where we think though, this is where we die. And in some ways, yes. But in more important ways, this is where we find life. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. When he says the bodies, I think he's going back to what he was talking about in Romans 6 there. When he's saying, offer the members of your bodies, the, the, the bodies to the Greek culture, to the Greek society, to, in which Paul is writing here. The body would have been just unimportant, just completely separate. It's less than. And Paul is saying, no, it's not less than, it's a part of what God created. He made this body for you. Yes, there's coming a time in which we'll receive glorified bodies, but this body right now, right here, is to be offered before the Lord. Each member of the body is to be given before the Lord. I I remember learning this so clearly when I was walking through Alcoholics Anonymous. The senior in high school, and I went through, my father showed me how to put this into practice, and I struggled like crazy doing it. And it took years But my dad would say, son, alcohol is destroying you. And I knew that. So don't focus on the whole body. Focus in on your mouth. 
and just begin praying that God would take your mouth, that he would do something with your mouth. And so I begin praying, God, today, would you take my mouth and would you allow nothing to come through these lips that would not honor you? And God, would you also allow nothing to come out of this mouth that would not honor you? My mouth was going on the altar as a living, not a dead sacrifice. And after so much work, went in and and God began to sanctify and do work again with failure after failure. I began to see, you know what? My hands are also part of this. And so Lord, today, would you take my hands? And I don't want to pick up anything that's not worth picking up. I don't want to do anything with these hands that would not bring honor and glory to you. In fact, I want to do the opposite, Lord. Today, would you use these as instruments of righteousness? Would you use these hands to bring healing to others? And it was then that I began to realize that folks needed hugs. I grew up in an affectionate family, but through AA, I realized there are people who are so messed up and people who who viewed themselves so awful. And sometimes these hands just given as a hug would breathe life into others. what would it look like to offer our whole selves? I know what we're used to. Some of us in this particular culture, God has blessed so richly financially and we know what it's like to actually do this before the Lord. And yes, God wants that. He wants that wallet in that place right there. But what he's not saying is just offer that and then go this direction. Because it's not about bringing something primarily. It's primarily about being a sacrifice. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, unfortunately, the NIV, I think, gets this one wrong. I love the NIV. I think it gets it wrong. Living should not be separated from holy and pleasing. It's three adjectives in the original language. Living, holy, pleasing is the type of sacrifice before God. Holy meaning it is consecrated to him. Once again, it is not offering our bodies to anything that we want them to be used for. It is consecrating them and being offered before God. Living, not dying. And pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Another way to say it, and other translations uh, translate it this way, it is your reasonable service of worship. I won't walk you through all this. Let me just summarize it by saying this. I think Paul leaves us with two options in here, spiritual service and reasonable service. Both, I think, are implied by Paul in here. It involves our minds. It involves our hearts. But the word he uses for worship right in here is the word latreia. Two primary words used in the New Testament for worship. One is proskuneo, the other is latreia. Proskuneo has to do with the kiss of intimacy, being drawn into the presence of one. It's that which you oftentimes and I oftentimes feel at an inner level. This word right here, though, is service. It's about what it is that you and I do in response to what it is that he has done. There is no such thing as true worship outside of sacrifice. It doesn't matter how much you and I give. It doesn't matter how much you and I do. There is no such thing as true worship, the kind of worship that God is after outside of sacrifice. And what ultimately is that sacrifice? 
giving up something of great value in order to gain something of even greater value. The sacrifice is actually me. The sacrifice is saying, Lord, right now, I don't want to serve you. I don't want to speak kindly. I don't want my feet to be used to share this good news with others. I don't want to climb up on this thing. Sacrifice is giving up something of great value in order to gain something of even greater value. And you and I try from time to time and we get there for a little bit. But we come back down. And the only way I know that you and I will stay up here as living sacrifices is if we look to the ultimate altar, the altar that was not built by God. It was built by human hands. It was two pieces of wood that were put together. And Jesus voluntarily and willingly and intentionally chose to walk up that hill. He chose to become the sacrifice, the one sacrifice that for all time made us righteous, those who would be followers of him. By looking at that particular sacrifice, being empowered by that sacrifice, we are lifted up by the power of the spirit to be able to come here and say, Lord, I am yours. And so God today, use this mouth, use these hands, use these feet. And in here, we actually don't find death. We find life. And when you and I find life, we become a tremendous blessing. Can I leave you with the same thought that Paul would leave his people, that Jesus left with his people, that Joshua left right at the end of his life. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Perimeter. Today, choose to crawl up on that altar empowered by Jesus himself. And in return, you will find life and you will be a blessing. Let me pray. For just a few moments um, while we're here, what I'd love to do is for us to confess before God how it is that we have not taken this particular attitude. So just in the quietness of your own heart, in the stillness of your seat, would you just confess before God um, how it is that you have refused to crawl up on an altar? Heavenly Father, all we know to do is to say we're wrong and you are right and thank you, Jesus for getting it right. So God, help. Help us um, to live lives that truly are consecrated before you. We really do want to be pleasing in your sight. And so God, just help us. We love you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Because Jesus has done it right, listen to the words of the psalm. David wrote, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So today, you're a true follower of Christ. You just confessed your sin. God doesn't see it. What he sees is how good Jesus was. So follower of Christ, you are forgiven. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. 
Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the Media Resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.